Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Driving forward the conversation right now for us as we uh, spoke with Kenneth Rogoff this morning of Harvard University on an important group of 30 study of digital currencies. We're going to touch on that quickly here with Raghun Rajan of Chicago, Group of 30 Working Group co-chair, former Indian governor, RBI governor of their central bank as well. Uh, Raghun, wonderful to have you with us today. What is the distinction of your study? What does this drive forward about how technology is changing money? Well, this is uh, the digital currencies are a revolution, right? Uh, for the first time in uh, 300 years, we can replace uh, cash uh, with something digital. Now, uh, we've already replaced bank accounts. We we have digital bank accounts, but but think of everything going digital and what possibilities that uh, that creates, but also what uh, what challenges. If, uh, for example, the government issues this digital currency, the amount of data it's going to collect, uh, the amount of uh, privacy it's going to violate, uh, and what, what concerns that uh, that raises. Those are what, what are made possible by these new technologies, uh, cryptocurrencies, government digital currencies. Uh, that's what, that's what we, we're, this report is about. When we talk about digital currencies, it's one aspect to talk about technology and just creating a digital form of what we already have. It's another to say we're debasing the existing currencies. Let's come up with an alternative that could preserve its value in tandem with gold. Which side are you on as the most plausible for the future of digital currencies? Well, it's the first. I, I think this idea of a private uh, cryptocurrency, which is forever going to maintain its value, is is interesting. But, uh, you know, credible central banks have done that with fiat currencies. So really, the the issue is once we convert that uh, cash, the, the stuff that you have in your wallets, into something digital, what new possibilities arise and uh, what, what new challenges? How do we contain all the concerns that emerge from that? And that's really what this is about. Dr. Rajan, I must bring this up. For the first time ever, folks, in all my years, I have taken a book of the summer of a year ago and made it a book of the summer of the following summer. I've never done that before, and I do that with Raghun Rajan's The Third Pillar, which is a primal scream for community in America, community in other societies. I want to talk about how The Third Pillar matters, uh, Raghu, and I want to talk about what you've observed over the last three months or so and how we need to get away from our culture wars back to community. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, actually, take the example of fighting the coronavirus, right? The uh, the countries that have been very successful at it, uh, South Korea, Germany, typically have had a, a combination of a centralized approach, setting broad parameters, uh, you know, getting the funding, but also a decentralized approach where each region figures out what its issues are, how it deals with it specifically, and how it brings its resources to bear. And so my sense is this is a, there is a broader <clears throat> example here that, uh, in fact, the way we're going to move ahead in our diverse countries without upsetting each faction is to have have a coherent, capable central government, right. of course, but also decentralized processes. 
If we look at the fault lines of the market right now, uh, Dr. Raja, and I'm seeing yields come in, folks, I'm not even going to do the data check here just to save time. Is the market telling the Fed what to do? Can the market drive us to towards negative interest rates? I, I think the uh, Fed is resistant, and uh, my sense is ultimately moving us negative. It will be the Fed which will move us. I don't think it's the market. Uh, however, uh, to some extent, I think uh, it's the real activity on the ground which is moving the Fed, uh, and the real activity is driven by this huge unknown, as as you well know, the uh, coronavirus and how we deal with it. Uh, I mean, everybody is very sanguine about a vi vaccine coming soon, and of course, that's going to take time. Time and it's going to take time to roll out. So, so there are tremendous uncertainties. The Fed is uh, is going to be as supportive as possible. I don't think that support right now extends to going seriously negative. Raghu, how concerning is it to you that the Fed's policies are propping up people who own stocks, typically the wealthier individuals, and not necessarily giving that much back to uh, Main Street? And this is just by function of the Fed's design. How concerning is that at a time when we don't have a fiscal plan yet in Washington? Well, uh, you do obviously need a fiscal plan, but I, I think the support uh, certainly for Main Street is uh, is structured there. Whether whether firms can take it is is an issue. There is an additional issue, which is at what point does the Fed allow the market? to start resolving firms. In other words, uh, you know, if this continues for some time, there will be a number of unviable firms. At what point does the Fed say, we're not going to support as much as we can, we're going to withdraw some of that support so that the uh, the unviable firms can be put out of, uh, of their misery, which will actually create space for the remaining firms and make them healthier. So that issue has to be tackled eventually. I don't think now is the time, but the Fed will have to start thinking about that. The longer the pandemic uh, sort of lasts. Professor Rajan, thank you so much. With the Booth School of Chicago and, of course, uh, Group of 30 Working Group co-chairman of an important essay with Ken Rogoff on digital uh, currencies, Raghun Rajan. Michelle Myers had a wonderful set of, uh, career, rather, at Bank of America Securities, head of U.S. economics now. And Michelle, John and Lisa have got some fancy pants question for you. I got a basic question that came off of David Gurr of NBC News uh, yesterday at the Who's Powell that? press conference, which was a separation of America into two societies. They're the haves, the new haves, which are going through this pandemic, service sector, they're at home, everything's fine, let's buy the beach house, and there's a whole nother America flat on its back. And the chairman took the bait. He answered the question. Tell us about this separation right now in America. Yeah. Hey, Tom. And I think it was a great question that David asked, and I'm glad to see that Fed Chair Powell did respond to it. And it's something that I think is really important to the Federal Reserve, the fact that we've seen this widening income inequality. It comes up in nearly every speech that Chair Powell has given. Um, and even before COVID hit, it was critical to their Fed listens events, this idea that we want to get a broader recovery. We want to have income creation widely spread. We want to control for the wealth inequality. And so why, do we, why is that so important? from a macro perspective. It's important because when you have, um, a, you know, income inequality or wealth inequality, you're not getting as strong of an aggregate spend as you can have, right? If so much of the money is concentrated in a small share of the population, that population can't possibly spend 
it all, right? So when you have the lower income population, which tend to be more budget constrained, tend to spend what they earn, it filters into the economy more and multiplies and it's a lot more favorable. Um, and this crisis has disproportionately hit the lower income population, particularly those that are working in leisure and hospitality. Um, that sector lost almost half of their jobs were cut. Um, as a result of, of COVID. Now, it's been coming back. The balance in the last two months has been favorable, but there's still a lot, millions of workers in that population that are out of work and looking. Michelle, you've done a tremendous job over the last couple of months with the team describing what this recovery will look like. A fall off the cliff, a bounce mm -hmm. off the trampoline, and a climb up the rope. The long yeah. climb has started. Yeah. Can you explain to our audience what you think that will look like? So that's exactly right. Now the hard work comes. And I think it's going to be a lot more wobbly, maybe fits and starts. So you make some progress, you climb up the rope, you, you hit a stumbling block, you pause for a bit, maybe part of the, maybe the economy falls back slightly. I don't think we're going to fall off again. I don't think it's a W-shaped trajectory. It's not going to be a downturn again, unless there's something much more significant that happens in terms of, you know, the, the path of COVID. But, but, but from here on, I think it's absolutely critical to pay attention to how consumer behavior evolves in the face of COVID risks and how <clears> the stimulus evolves, both monetary and fiscal. And right now, we're in a critical point when thinking about fiscal policy and how targeted uh, the stimulus may or may not be in terms of reaching that yeah. population that has a higher tendency to spend that money. On the monetary policy side of things, the Fed's going nowhere fast. Tom Keene, there is an elephant sitting on the front end of the yield curve. It is called the Federal Reserve <laughs> and a two-year yield breaking down. It is. And, John, this is fascinating. I mean, I don't know what else to say, but, you know, I go back to Hunt Brothers Silver. I mean, there's a point where the market starts telling institutions what to do. Michelle Meyer, is there enough power out there for markets to tell the Fed what to do? Well... You know, it's a it's a tricky question because in a way, markets clearly do influence monetary policy because monetary policy and the Federal Reserve will react to financial conditions because that's the transmission of policy. You know, think about everything that that is trying to do in terms of their policies and, you know, the commitment to low interest rates, um, their support for the flow of credit. The way they observe that and see if there's success is to determine how financial conditions evolve and how markets evolve. So markets can push beneficial societies some extent because it's kind of that 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 calibration in a way. Tom Keane, looking at that front end breaking down 0.12%. I think Lisa mentioned this earlier on the program, the five-year space on the Treasury curve, the belly. <clears throat> Lisa, this is getting interesting. Low for longer is something we're told repeatedly. This market's listening. It's taking the policy rate and pushing it out along the curve into the belly. And how is that going to help employment? And I think this is one of the big questions right now, especially with the Federal Reserve doing everything they can and gridlock in Washington, John. Michelle Mayer there of Bank of America Securities. I'm going to read you some numbers, folks, about what was as we bring in David Kelly of J.P. Morgan. And David Kelly knows these numbers and he knows why I'm going to them. The animal spirit line of nominal GDP, long ago and far away, 4%, a better number, 4.1, back to 4%, 3.9%. Then it was terrible, negative 3.4%. And the new statistic, David Kelly, negative 34.3% nominal GDP. That is unsustainable. What gets us out of this besides a cure of the virus? David, is there a policy prescription that can lessen this pain? 
Well, yes, you can lessen the pain by, by doing two things. One, you've got to make sure you don't have more layoffs of state and local governments. If you look at the aftermath of the, the great financial crisis, we had five years of job losses at state and local governments because they couldn't balance the books without laying off workers, given the state of the economy. So you need some, if you're going to spend federal money, spend federal money by giving it to state and local governments so they don't have to lay off workers who can work during a pandemic. Second, you've got to get this unemployment, this $600 right. $600 is too much because for a lot of low-wage workers, it actually makes it, uh, you know, they're losing money by working. But zero is the wrong number, too. So I think a settlement on something like $300, <clears throat> which will give people just enough of incentive get, to get back to work while still avoiding widespread poverty. Those are the two things the government can do right now to try and alleviate the situation. But you're completely right. The number one thing you've got to do is you've got to control the virus. I remember many years ago, Mickey Cantor said, it's the economy, stupid. Well, now it's the virus, stupid. You've got to control this virus if you want a full reopening. So we're going to get a bounce in GDP in the, in the third quarter. Uh, but this is, you know, this is not a V-shaped recovery. This is a V interrupted. And it's being interrupted by the growth of this pandemic. We've got to get that under control. David, when are we going to actually see the true pain of the unemployment figures that we're getting right now in consumption, in sort of the bleed through to default, in some of the economic pain that's been forestalled by the enhanced unemployment benefits and some other fiscal measures? Well, of course, if we don't get another package, we'll see it pretty quickly. But I, I think we will continue to see, you know, over the second half of this year, uh, we're going to see more traditional recessionary indications of, you know, more bankruptcies. Companies are sort of held in there because the PPP are going to unfortunately go bankrupt. Um, so we're going to see a, a lot of that. Uh, you know, hopefully you can have a phase reopening of the economy and some more federal money to try and, uh, and alleviate things. But uh, unfortunately, you know, policy is not really designed to protect the, the, the equity of small business owners here. And I think that's, to me, that's a, one of the biggest tragedies here. The people who put a lifetime into building a small business and they're just going to get wiped out by this thing and the, the government really isn't finding a way to, to help them. So there's a lot of pain to come. We will, though, get a, we'll get a vaccine in 2021. I think we'll get multiple vaccines. So at some stage when we all pull together and decide as a nation that we are going to rid ourselves of this virus with the help of a vaccine, then we'll get back to normal. But we do have to wait for that. David, I think we all fully understand the reaction function of the Federal Reserve. What I don't quite understand right now is the reaction function of investors. How do you think investors respond next week if we get a negative payroll print? Uh, well, you, you may say you'll probably see some sell off in the equity markets because that, that won't necessarily encourage. There's not, not much more that, that, that I, you know, I think Congress is going to do. So if we got that print, that'd be, that'd be right. But, but on that print, if you go back five weeks ago and look at the unemployment claims for the survey week um, in June, and then you compare it with, uh, with the survey week for July, we still got a, about a two million, million person reduction in continuing claims. So I still think we might um, you know, get a small positive on payrolls for the month of July and then a negative one for August. But the broad picture is I don't think the, I don't think the labor market is going to get much worse, but it's not going to get much better. I think we'll still have over 10 percent unemployment as we go into 2021. David Kelly, great to catch up with you, sir. JP Morgan Asset Management Chief, Global Strategist. Let's bring in Aaron Sundararajan, shall we? NYU Stern School of Business professor. Aaron, great to catch up with you, sir. Did anything change in the last 24 hours? Any change whatsoever? Or was that all just a spectacle? Um, I think the tone of the hearing was very different from any of the past um, hearings that we've had about big tech. Um, 
certainly a little more aggressive, a little more negative, but also from Congress's point of view, much more informed. This wasn't about like, you know, how do you earn money from your advertising? Uh, many of the members of Congress sort of probed deep into specific issues relating to market power, relating to predatory pricing that made me feel that they were far better informed than in any hearing that has occurred in the past. Um, now, you know, there, there were lots of misconceptions as well, but, um, you know, overall, I think it's a turning point for big tech regulation, and we've entered a new phase. Professor, you came out of the Rochester Graduate School Combine, so you've seen personally the collapse of a traditional economy up in western New York, whether it's Buffalo, Rochester, you could say that about anywhere else in the country. Your book cover is maybe the most courageous I've seen. The end of employment and the rise of crowd-based capitalism. How bad is the end of employment? That's what these politicians were really talking about, wasn't it? Well, uh, the end of employment is different from the end of work. Um, I think part of the point that I'm making here is that a lot of work that occurs in the future will not come packaged as these full-time jobs that we got used to in the 20th century, um, but will have a much greater fraction of entrepreneurship. And in many ways, the story that the platforms told yesterday um, was one of, um, like, you know, we are in an economy where you've got millions of sellers on Amazon. You've got tens of millions of small businesses being supported by advertising on Google. You know, if you move away from the big four, um, there are millions of hosts on Airbnb. There are millions of restaurants delivering through Uber Eats and DoorDash. And so this platform-based economy is going to pervade, um, like, you know, our future of work. And, um, you know, one of the things that was striking to me about yesterday's testimony was this misconception that somehow platforms harm small business. And so while we've seen these sort of local geographic economies implode, um, it isn't immediately clear to me that small business has been disproportionately hurt by the platforms. In many ways, I think that they're actually shifting a lot of economic activity away from sort of larger to mid-sized players and towards millions of small businesses. Arun, this is a very important point. Of course, one line of questioning yesterday was the idea that these platforms that do give voice to smaller businesses are rigged, that they're basically in favor of certain companies, namely the platforms themselves and their own proprietary brands. I'm thinking about Amazon. What do you say to that? Well, um, I think that was a central theme that came out of the hearing yesterday. And, um, you know, more broadly, it has to do with, um, you know, what are the limits that we need to place on channel or marketplace power? Um, I don't think a convincing case was made that the platforms are somehow overtly or explicitly favoring, you know, their own um, products. Um, you know, Amazon is certainly... Um, you know, Amazon is following in a sort of a long, a, a long tradition of other retailers in creating store brands. I think a lot of the uh, what, what, what happens in the next few months of looking at um, are they somehow disadvantaging small businesses by looking at a product and then copying it? Um, is the Apple iOS somehow slowing down the performance of competing apps while speeding up their own? You know, because I think broadly, you know, Tim Cook said that, um, 
it was really hard to sell software before the App Store came along. You needed to sort of get it shrink-wrapped and into a retailer. Now you have millions of tiny app developers who have access to the, you know, the App Store, the Google Play Store. And so prima facie, it's hard to make a case that these things are bad for small business and bad for competition. And the devil is going to be in the details of have they sort of taken specific actions to, like, you know, to crush diapers.com, to, um, like, you know, um, to, to suppress particular small businesses. And to your point, Jeff Bezos yesterday coming out and saying, unlike industries that are winner-take-all, there's room in retail for many winners. I'm wondering, Arun, we're going to be getting earnings from Apple, Amazon, and Alphabet after the bell today. Are you looking for some sort of self-regulatory measures that will crimp their profitability to get ahead of any potential regulation from Washington? Um, Absolutely. Um, I think a lot of the purpose of hearings like this is to create a credible test a credible threat of regulation if the platforms don't do something themselves. Um, But because, you know, if you think about what society has done, we have given these platforms a tremendous amount of power, Um, government-like power um, with censorship, with ID systems, with uh, copyright and uh, intellectual property. Facebook is backing its own currency, surveillance. And so we can't sort of suddenly say now, hey, I mean, like, you know, we're unhappy with the status quo. Um, and we're going to come in with a big stick and make you change your behavior because that, I mean, like, you know, no nation state government actually has the power to do that. And the real solution is going to be self-regulatory. But I think the platforms are being nudged in the right direction to make changes um, by the specter of, like, you know, big government regulation. And to me, the best solution for society is for the platforms to take matters into their own hands and say, well, here are the changes we're going to make. Here are the limits we're going to place on the power that a marketplace uh, creator has in developing, in being a supplier. Here are the limits we're going to place on predatory pricing. Here are the limits yeah. we're going to place on privacy. And, and so because they are better informed than any government entity about, like, you know, what's possible, um, they're closest to the action. And so I think that's the future we're going to see unfold in the next two or three years. Arun, we're lucky to have you on the show today. We appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Arun Sundararajan of NYU Stern School of Business. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.